This morning's scripture reading is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I invite you to join with me. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home and marveled at what had happened. I don't know everything there is to know about Brother Cecil. But I do know before he was married, he was a May. Isn't that right? I th- I th- May, May is his maiden name. And I also know that he's a really good sport, and I love that man. I feel like I need to offer a very brief uh, disclaimer about the lesson this morning. I am just as aware as the next Bible student that there is no biblical directive or mandate or even precedent for observing Easter above any other first day of the week. I understand that. But also understand that there is no wrong time to talk about the resurrection, and I am a firm believer in talking about what people are thinking about. And so this morning, that's what we're going to direct our attention toward, the great resurrection of our Lord. Also don't need to tell you that there's a great deal of skepticism today about the resurrection, perhaps more so than ever in any time in my lifetime. That took place some 1,986 years ago. The Bible tells us that the resurrection of Jesus took place on the first day of the week following the Passover. And we know that the the resurrection has garnered more attention than any other event in all of human history. There are few people on the planet who don't know that there are masses of people in churches all over the world right now, this morning, who are thinking and talking and celebrating the resurrection of our Lord. Those who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus may be rejecting the truth of it, but they are not rejecting the knowledge of it. They at least know about it. But we also need to acknowledge that not everybody who receives the resurrection story receives it in such an appreciative manner. That is, there's a great deal of skepticism and sometimes outright disbelief when we began talking about the fact that our Lord walked out of the tomb that Sunday morning long ago. There are those who see the resurrection of Jesus as nothing more than a fable or a farce or a legend. There are liberal scholars who debate with regularity the reality of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But what's unexplainable to these so-called scholars is why. 
Why, in the face of their best efforts, has the resurrection doctrine not been completely squelched in these last 2,000 years? Millions of people still believe in it, who still base their entire lives upon this bedrock foundational truth. And these scholars are sickened by the fact that the message of the resurrection is as alive today as it has ever been. But again, I pose the question, why is that the case? Why, in the face of their supposedly compelling evidence, has the resurrection doctrine, the resurrection belief, not been put to sleep long ago? In April of 1996, some 23 years ago, something unique happened in the history of publishing. Two major publications, both Time and Newsweek magazines, had a picture of Jesus on the cover of their magazines in the same week. It's nothing new to have two major periodicals with the same picture. It happened to be making big news at the time. People like O.J. Simpson, I think, made the, the magazine covers at the same time, and maybe the current sitting president or some slain world leader, or maybe even the most recent terrorist attack. Those times, those uh, magazines oftentimes will put their, their covers of what they will have in common. But the same week, the same week as Time and Newsweek magazine had Jesus' picture on the cover, well, of course, a mock-up of his picture, that same week, U.S. News and World Report had an article about the resurrection of Jesus. All three of these magazines had a picture of Jesus because something significant happened 2,000 years ago. Now, before anybody gets too excited about all this good PR about our Savior, you need to know that not one of those three magazines put forth a positive presentation of Jesus in the eyes of those of us who are conservative and convicted in our view of the Bible as the Word of God. Listen to what was said to the April 8th, 1996 Newsweek cover story, Rethinking, this is the title or the caption below the picture, Rethinking the Resurrection, a new debate about the risen Christ. And that was the article inside was written by a man of the name of Kenneth Woodward. And he says, beginning that article, by any measure, the resurrection of Jesus is the most radical of Christian doctrines. So far, so good. In that same issue of Newsweek, we can read the following. Most Christians still believe in the risen Jesus. For fundamentalists, the Bible is as good as its word. Since the scriptures say Jesus returned physically from the dead, then that's what happened. But very few Christians are literalists on this point, and among Christians there is a range of opinions about what the resurrection really means. For example, a Harris poll taken in 1994, that would have been two years before this magazine issue came out, this Harris poll indicated that 87% of Americans believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. But then the article went on to say, but the survey conducted last month, that would be two years later, by the Barnett Research Group, a conservative Christian organization in Glendale, California, finds that 30%, here's the significant issue, 30% of born-again Christians do not believe, do not believe that Jesus came back to physical life after he was crucified, end quote. The Bible really is as good as its word. And I go on record this morning as saying, I do believe in the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus after his death. But I'm not so naive as to deny that there are many who claim to believe in Jesus who don't believe in the resurrection. That is just a matter of fact. We know that's the case. The surveys indicate that that is, is the case. I don't understand it, but neither do I deny it. 
Now, BARDA is a good group when it comes to taking surveys and polling. And their studies again show that 30% of the people who claim to be Christians deny the literal resurrection of our Lord from the grave. Bottom line is they think that his body rotted away somewhere in a barred tomb. But that skepticism and even that cynicism is nothing new. Let me share with you a brief list of those who doubted the resurrection. Note again, here's the heading over the list. Those who doubted the resurrection of Jesus. Mary Magdalene, James, Joanna, the mother of James, Peter, John, Thomas, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, James the son of Alphaeus, and on and on. We could make that list longer and longer. I'm telling you this so that you will know that for a lot of Jesus' closest friends and associates, the resurrection morning really was a morning beyond belief. It was beyond the belief of the apostles, beyond the belief of the women who came to anoint the body of Jesus that Sunday morning. And if we're perfectly honest, perhaps there are those of us in this audience who have had our moments of doubt and disbelief and skepticism about whether it really took place or not. Luke's gospel account, and that's where I want us to park for a few minutes together this morning, shows that not one, not one of Jesus' closest followers expected the resurrection. Even though Jesus predicted his walking out of that tomb at least six times in just Luke's gospel account. Luke's account is especially significant because Luke was a physician. And the Gospel of Luke really tells the story. As a doctor, every fiber of his medical training would have prejudiced him against the idea of anyone ever walking out of a tomb. He knew that as a doctor, when you're dead, you're dead. And you don't come back. And yet, by inspiration, Luke records this story beautifully and completely. Note, first first of all, if you will, that the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. That's significant for a reason that we'll talk about in just a moment. Because the Bible account tells us that on on Sunday morning, some of the women followers of Jesus went to his, his tomb with spices with which to anoint his body. Now the fact that they were bringing spices with them to the tomb is indicative of their expectations. According to their custom, the spices would be used to embalm the body of Jesus that had been dead and was decaying for some three days. And the spices would help to delay the decomposition of his body. But the Bible account says that when they got to the tomb, the stone that enclosed the tomb had already been rolled away. And the body of Jesus, watch this carefully, was not inside. Now get that. They were not expecting to encounter the risen Christ. They came expecting to see a dead man lying in a grave, wrapped in a burial shroud. They expected Jesus to be dead. They fully expected him to remain dead. Now, this surprise on the part of Jesus' followers, I think, is is very important for us today. They did not anticipate his resurrection. They had to be convinced, just like everybody else. And, And since we know how this story turns out, it's easy for us to forget that sometimes how hard it was for the disciples themselves to really believe in the resurrection of Jesus. It only, when they got there and they found the tomb empty, it only told them one thing, that Jesus was gone. It did not tell them necessarily that he had been risen. There was yet to come the announcement of the angels 
and the numerous appearances of Jesus post-resurrection that Paul would chronicle over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But, but all four gospel accounts indicate that the women were the first witnesses to the resurrection. Now, if the gospel writers were making up this story, they would not have chosen women in this capacity as eyewitnesses. No offense to the women in this congregation this morning. But in Jewish society, women were the worst witnesses that anyone could have conjured up. And here's why. Women were not allowed to testify in a Jewish court of law. The word of women was not taken as credible in that culture. Now, if you are inventing, if, you are, if you're conjuring up this resurrection story, then you could find much better witnesses than these women. That's the point. You would find someone who has some degree of credibility, not those who had the least credibility in that culture. And look at Luke 24, verse 11. The Bible says, there, that is the women... Their words seemed like them, that is the apostles, like idle tales, and they did not believe them. That explains then the, re- the reaction of the apostles toward the women. They simply dismissed the words of the women. The, Luke says they did not believe them. The NIV uses a stronger word. Rather than idle tales, it uses the word nonsense. Can you believe that? The resurrection of Jesus seemed to be nothing but nonsense to his most devoted followers, to his closest disciples. And that's despite the fact that Jesus had told them just a little while before his death that he would be coming back. The story these women told, if I may be allowed to quote Mr. T, was nothing more than jibber-jabber. It was nonsense. It made no sense to them for the women to come back and say the tomb is empty. They were... They were perplexed by what the women came back and reported. By the way, the Greek word for nonsense here is a medical term that means foolish or idle talk, the wild ravings of someone who is in delirium or hysteria. That's a strong word. That's how the apostles felt about the word of the women when they came back and said, guess what? The tomb is empty. The second thing I want us to notice this morning about this resurrection account is is about those who forgot that Jesus had promised that he was coming back. Isn't that amazing? They happen to forget that Jesus made this promise over and over again, once again, just six times in Luke's gospel account. So when the women arrived at the tomb, they were confronted, the Bible says, by two men. By the way, you need to know that this is one of the so-called discrepancies of the Bible. This is the one that Newsweek magazine was very happy to point out in their account of the resurrection story. Matthew's account says it was an angel of the Lord. But Matthew does not say there was but one angel. He simply focuses on the angel that moved the stone. Mark's account says that the messenger was a young man in a long white robe. Luke's account says it was two men in gleaming clothes. John refers in his his account to two angels or messengers. Now, does that mean that the resurrection story is, is all fouled up and that the gospel writers all contradict one another? Are we going to do the same thing that Newsweek magazine did and completely deny the resurrection because of this so-called alleged discrepancy? When we stop and think about the differences in what the witnesses saw and heard, and their accounts were recorded differently in the gospel records, I don't deny that there were differences in the way that the witnesses described what they saw. That's just human nature to do that. But it doesn't mean that they contradict one another. It is supplemental information. For example, if someone saw an accident, a car accident out here on Atlanta Highway, imagine that if you can. And the first person, the first witnesses 
that the police interrogate, or interview rather, said, well, the man who was driving the car who caused the accident seemed as if he were under the influence of alcohol. They talked to witness number two, and she says there was a woman in the passenger seat of that vehicle. They would go back to witness number one and say, you lied because all you said was that there was a man driving the car who appeared to be inebriated. No, he just focused on the man who was driving the car. The second witness then adds more information and alludes to the fact that there was a passenger in the passenger seat. We understand how that human nature works. But one thing, watch this closely, church, that is absolutely consistent with all the witnesses is the tomb was empty that Sunday morning. And notice the response of these angels. I love this. I absolutely love this. Verse 5 says, why do you seek the living among the dead? That was a perfectly logical question for the angels to ask because they knew not only that Jesus was gone, they knew where Jesus had gone to. They knew Jesus, why Jesus had walked out of that tomb. Why do you seek the living among the dead? To the women, Jesus was not a risen Messiah. He was a dead rabbi. Remember, they didn't go to the tomb to celebrate his resurrection. They went there to mourn his death. Oh, no, they wanted to see Jesus, but the angel pointed out, you're looking for him in the wrong place. They were looking for Jesus among the dead people in the graveyard, and Jesus was not dead. He was, he was very much alive. The angels then inform the women, if you're looking for Jesus, why in the world are you looking for him in a cemetery? That's why we're here this morning. That's why we gather in this place every Lord's Day morning. Because the tomb was empty. They go on to say in verse 6, he is not here, but is risen. Now, think about the fact that this is new information to those women and to those disciples. The angel's announcement, he is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you? Notice the word remember. I have that underscored in my Bible. Remember. He's having to, the angels are having to jog their memory. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee saying, the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Now, don't you think it's a bit strange that the women forgot that Jesus said he was going to be resurrected? I mean, that seems to be something that would kind of stick in your memory, doesn't it? By the way, I'm going to die for the sins of all mankind, and I'm going to come out of the tomb. I'm going to be resurrected again. But the passage says, and they remembered his words. That's verse 8. We might even add the word then for the sake of grammatical continuity. They then remembered his words at the jogging of the angels. All of a sudden, it came back to them what Jesus had promised about his resurrection. Not only did these women forget what Jesus had predicted, Watch this carefully. The apostles apparently forgot as well. Ironically, the only people who did not forget what Jesus said about the resurrection were the Jewish rulers. Because they were the ones who took great measures, who went to great lengths to make sure that the tomb would not be empty, 
And so that, that would validate the resurrection story. They went to Pilate. They asked the guards to be placed around the tomb to keep anyone from stealing the body and then claiming that he had been raised. And they would be careful that the body of Jesus be kept in the grave so that there would be no validity in anything that Jesus said. Because if Jesus promised to be raised and he was not raised, and they could prove that he was not raised, then anything that he said during his personal ministry would be immediately invalidated. They understood how that worked. They understood how people thought. And they also understood how people would react to that news. That they stole the body of Jesus and here's where he is and we can produce his body to show you that he didn't really walk out of that tomb at all. While others are wholesale rejecting the resurrection, there's one man who's quietly checking it out. When the women go back and report to the men, the men think their words are nonsense. We've already established that. But there is a stirring of interest in one of those men. Something stirs Peter to check it out. And I'm staying in the book of Luke here because that's where we are and that's a fine place to start. It gives us all the information we need. While the others are refusing to believe, the Bible says that Peter runs. And I mean runs, elbows pumping to the tomb to see for himself, to see if what the women said might have some credibility. And when he sees the tomb empty, just as the women had said, he sees the linen burial cloth there, and it changed his morning. And that's probably the vastest understatement that I could ever make. It not only changed his morning, it changed his life. Peter is the one who would later write his first letter and and began that in the opening verses by saying it was the resurrection that made our hopes become alive again. What are you telling us, Peter? That means our hopes were dead. But now the resurrection changed everything. Our hopes are now alive again. It became a morning beyond belief for Peter and for the other apostles and for those women because anyone wanting to remove the body would have done so quickly and would not have taken the time to remove the grave clothes before stealing the body. Peter is left there with his jaw dropped wondering what just happened. One final question for your consideration this morning. What does that morning beyond belief mean to us today? Or does it mean anything? And of course, I suggest that it means everything. What I'm telling you is, and I hope that you'll go home with this point in your heart and in your mind, above all else, that the resurrection of Jesus offers the single hope that death is reversible. May I say that again? Death is reversible. You wreck your car, you get another one. You lose your credit cards, you have them replaced. You lose a pet, you mourn over that pet, but then you have it replaced. But then one day, a person that you know well dies, and again, the feeling that that death is permanent and irreversible is made even more concrete to you. You're faced with the reality that the person you loved is not coming back, that death is final. Dad dies, or grandmother dies, or your precious spouse, and you have that deep sense in your heart of hearts that death is irreversible. And maybe even in moments of despair, you remind yourself that you will never see that person again, ever. And maybe that's why death is so fought and so feared the way it is in our world today. Because of our sense that death is permanent. But that there are no do-overs when it comes to this thing that we call life. 
But again, I say to you this morning, church, that the resurrection offers the single hope that death is reversible. Think if, of the personal implications of that. We have stood as a family, by that I mean the church family here at university, and we have cried together over the graves of so many loved ones in this congregation. Think of the funerals that we have had and that we are right now planning for this good church. And I'm just telling you today that the resurrection of Jesus gives us the assurance that those people that we loved so very much are living again. The only hope that we have based on the idea that we're see, we'll see those loved ones again is four square on the credibility and the reliability of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Allow me to read, if you will, I hope this is not too personal, but I want us to make this personal this morning. The names of loved ones from this church who have made the empty tomb and its promises so much more important and so much more personal to us. Names like Sandra Honecker, Bob Hudson, Pierre Caldwell, Lynn Long, James Deason, Mitch Grubb, Min Stouch Owen, Alan Ammons, and recently added our dear, loved brother Charles Mills. You see, everyone has skin in the game when it comes to the resurrection. We have a vested interest in whether the resurrection of Jesus Christ is fact or fantasy. And that's because, as Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead that Sunday morning, nobody else will ever be raised again either. But he then concludes that wonderful chapter with this exclamation, you know verse 57 as well as I do, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful way to end the great resurrection chapter. As he talks about all the doubts and all the skepticism and even the cynicism that is addressing the issue of the resurrection of our Lord and how that Paul is acknowledging that there is no hope, there is no promise, there is no certainty, there's no blessed assurance if Jesus did not walk out of that tomb on Sunday morning. But then he ends by saying, thanks be to God who gives us the victory. The victory is knowing that Jesus walked out of the tomb. And that everyone who follows him will someday be raised to never die again. You can connect the dots as well as I can. And that's why Paul argues that point so logically and so powerfully and even so emotionally in 1 Corinthians 15. All of those names that I just read are more alive than you or I. And they are right now walking the street of gold with our Lord. And folks, if that does not give you some comfort and some assurance, nothing will. And because he lives, we can face these tough moments with confidence that this is not the end of the story. This is not the last page of the book. That book just keeps on going through time into eternity. Death is reversible in the truest sense of the word. And I'm happy to re-announce that to you this morning. Remember again Paul's argument from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 13 and 14. Check it out. But if there's no resurrection of the dead and Christ is not risen... And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. That's, that makes perfect sense, Paul. You're exactly right. Because everything we believe is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where would our hope be if that tomb was not empty the first Sunday morning after the Passover? 
Let me ask you this morning, and I mean honestly, heart to heart. Do you have doubts about God's power to raise the dead? Or maybe, is your greatest doubt, is it the doubt that you have about your standing with the great God of the universe? You believe in the resurrection. You believe what Luke and the other gospel writers have said about it. And you've based your life upon that. But you know at this moment in your life, you're not ready for that resurrection morning, at least in terms of your own spiritual preparation. You see, you can believe in the resurrection with all of your heart. But if you've not appropriated God's forgiveness and his grace through the blood of that risen Savior, then you are not ready for that great getting up morning. But you need to know that death and sin are reversible. And that's why Jesus Christ died on that old rugged cross. Listen to this, and then I'm through, but you connect the dots as I read this passage. This is Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Therefore, as Paul considers what he had just stated in the first three verses of Romans 6, therefore, that is because of this, we were buried with him through baptism into death. Want to know where you contact the blood of Jesus? Where it will cover your sins? It's in death. And so you're baptized into his death. That just as Christ, just as Christ was raised, literally as Christ was resurrected from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. When you became a New Testament Christian, you were immersed in water. That was symbolic of Christ on death, burial, and resurrection. The old man of sin died. You were put in the watery grave of baptism, but you did not stay there any more than Jesus stayed in the tomb. Just as Jesus came out, just as Jesus was resurrected on the third day, the Bible says you're going to be raised from that watery grave to walk in a brand new life. All sins washed away. Now your hope is set on eternity. You're looking forward to that city that is not built with hands. You're looking forward to the time you'll see the face of Jesus again. Folks, I can't tell you how much this ought to mean to those of us as believers and to those who are potential believers, those who are thinking right now about becoming a follower of Jesus Christ because you believe in the resurrection story. You know that it happened the way the Bible says, and now you want to base your life upon that certainty. That's what we beg you to come to this morning, and that's what we lead you to through the power of Jesus and through the power of his blood while we stand.